You are listening to the Business Accelerator Program, a podcast brought to you by Lou Hutt and the Hutt Company. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me. This is podcast 3.0 of the Business Accelerator Program. Of course, my name is Lou Hutt, and I am going to spend um, the next few minutes discussing some issues that I think are germane to the continued growth and development of your business enterprise. Now, up to this point in podcast one, podcast two, we really focused first on business hazards, um, those threats that stand to derail a company that has a great idea, has a, a good plan, and more than adequate resources. So even with those elements in place, what we talked about on the first podcast is that if you do not strategically, and I do mean this, if you're not strategically manage your bottom line, that even the best laid plan, even the best finance company, even the best led company can fail. In the second podcast, we really began to look at the financial components, particularly cash flow. And I made uh, a concentrated effort to explain the ebbs and the flows of cash flow. I suggested to you that billing policies and credit terms extended to your customers have a big impact on cash. On the flip side, the credit payment terms extended to you by your vendors significantly impact cash flow. Ideally, in the perfect world, we like to be able to bill a customer, collect from the customer before the time is expired to pay our vendor. Rarely, if ever, does that happen. So we find a situation typically where we bill a customer. So much time lapses and then we have to pay the vendor and then wait to be paid by the creditor. So we spent time on measuring our cash flow needs and requirements because where we have that gap, that pretty much defines the point at which we need to measure the amount of financing that's needed for our business. The flip side is that even if we meet our cash flow needs, And there's a variety of ways to do it. We can either invest capital. We can uh, obtain a business loan. We can even get a business investor. But ultimately, even with that support, the company has to stand on its own. It's got to be able to generate a profit. So we spoke about profitability. And I used a simple example, and I said, hey, listen, if it essentially costs you 
$20 to make a widget, you've at least got to sell that widget for $21. At least. To stand in a position to generate a profit. So I think I left you with the idea that in the short term, cash flow is paramount. Positive cash flow is critical. But over the long term, even over the intermediate term, profitability is critical. So we've got our building blocks in order. Uh, we've talked about the entrepreneurial journey in terms of business hazards. We've talked about managing the bottom line in terms of cash flow and profitability. And now I want to turn my attention to the qualitative infrastructure of the business. Not so much the quantifiable infrastructure, but the qualitative infrastructure. So I plan to talk about three things. I want to talk with you about the idea of legally tightening the screws on a business. That's right, tightening the screws so that there's no give and take and it's solid. I also want to talk to you about business risk and the need to be proactive when it comes to downsizing or some might say mitigating business risk. And last but certainly not least, I want to talk to you about setting strategic priorities. Because we don't have all of the resources in the world, so we've got to we got to set some priorities. And as a CEO and a chief financial strategist of the business, you've got to kind of put in place the first and most important thing, the second thing, and the third thing. And by the way, over time, those priorities will shift and change. But I'm going to give you a starting point. Okay. Tightening up the screws legally on a business. It starts with what I think most of us can appreciate, which is asset protection. That's right, asset protection. When we go into business, the first rule is to take steps to decrease, to minimize, possibly to eliminate personal liability. So you recognize that when you go into business, there's certain legal risk. I mean, whenever you're interfacing with the public, things can happen. I mean, you may bring someone in to work for you. That person has an accident, God forbid. You manufacture your product or service and you, and you get it out to the customer and it turns out to be defective possibly injuring someone. You have a dispute with a vendor and it turns out to be a sizable uh, issue in terms of potential legal damages and you want to protect yourself personally from that. So the first step in, again, working on this qualitative infrastructure 
is we want to minimize personal risk. And we do that by looking at incorporating a business. That's right. I mean, too, too often people think, well, there are tremendous tax benefits. Well, that's not really the driver. The real driver behind incorporating a business is limiting your personal financial legal liability. So, I often say when I'm discussing the incorporation process is incorporating a business allows you to create a firewall, a barrier, an impenetrable barrier between you personally and that business that's on the other side of the wall. That said, there are two primary options to consider in incorporating a business. Corporation, limited liability company. Corporation is a structure normally that envisions a certain level of formality. So typically in a corporation, you have a set of bylaws and that defines voting rights and responsibilities among those who may be owners in the business. It also sets forth the different officers from president to secretary, treasurer. It talks about the voting process. If you set up a corporation, you as the owner must be recognized as an employee of the business. Now, there are some implications because if you're an employee of the business, any compensation that you receive is subject to payroll withholdings. And I want you to remember that point because we'll come back to it when we're talking about another form of incorporation. So we've got to think. Here we are. We're at the juncture where we're trying to decide whether to incorporate as a corporation. And we think about the implications. The first one I mentioned is you as an owner, but an employee of the business, your compensation is subject to withholdings. The corporation provides the opportunity to bring in others who may want to buy an interest in the business. In fact, the corporation structure not only allows you to uh, make so-called capital investments, but you can also make a loan to your own corporation. You could have one shareholder yourself. You can have multiple shareholders. Now, most small companies, closely held companies, probably have 10, 15, 20 shareholders, if that. Because those people 
have purchased an interest in the business, they have a right to vote. They have a right, generally speaking, to receive a dividend if it's ever declared. And a dividend is essentially a distribution of earnings. That is, a distribution of profit that remains after expenses are paid. Now, one reason that many folk, at least traditionally, way back when, would shy away from corporations is to say, well, a corporate form of business, from a tax standpoint, raises the specter for double taxation. This corporation is taxed at one level. Any profits after payment of compensation to owners, etc., is taxed. And then if anything is left and carried forward in that corporation, eventually if it's distributed to you as a shareholder, not in the form of compensation, but just to distribute earnings, when you receive those dollars as a shareholder, it would be taxed again. So you have a form of so-called double taxation. Well, that that gaffe was remedied decades ago by Congress because they modified the Internal Revenue Code to allow for small companies, generally companies with 50 or less shareholders, to elect the so-called subchapter S status for tax purposes. So, what does that mean to the average person? It just simply means if you're an owner and say you own 25% of the corporation, you can expect that whatever the bottom line of the corporation is, profit or loss, you personally will have to recognize that 25% profit or loss on your personal income tax return. In fact, rather than get a, rather than receiving a W-2 form, you will receive a K-1 form, which is the same thing as a W-2 form. It's just that that's what's issued for people who own shares in a subchapter S corporation. Okay. The limited liability company different type of incorporation, a few different features. One, as just a general observation, limited liability companies are not required by statute to be as formal as corporations. Case in point, you as an individual who works in a business Unlike with corporations where you must be treated as an employee and your compensation is subject to withholdings, well, if you work in your business as a, sub, as a, as a worker, your earnings are not subject to payroll withholdings. In fact, you're treated just like a Self-employed individuals. You're treated like an independent contractor. You're treated like a self-employed person. And therefore, on a quarterly basis, to the extent there are profits from the LLC, the limited liability company, you are required 
to make quarterly tax payments. That's right, quarterly income tax payments. You got to calculate it. You use your uh, <laughs> use your own devices, or you use the assistance of your CPA. And you literally make quarterly payments to the IRS and the state. Now you might say, well, what is then so attractive? Well, the reality is, in a limited liability company, you can move money in and out more freely without quite as much accounting. In a corporation, money that goes in and comes out either has to be accounted for as a loan, it has to be accounted for as compensation. It's a little more technical. Limited liability company is less formal. And guess what? By definition, by fiat, for income tax purposes, the limited liability company is equal to a subchapter S corporation. In this sense, whatever the net income or net loss of the limited liability company is, is passed on to its so-called members. So if you own 25% of the limited liability company and the limited liability company has a profit of $100,000 on your personal income tax return, you will pick up $25,000. So you can see why it's important that you make quarterly estimated income tax payments so that at the end of the day, on the personal side, you're not saddled with these incredible tax liabilities that have been unfunded. Now you might say, well, how does the limited liability or the S corporation help that individual? Because in many cases, the profits are reinvested in the business. That's right. It's, even though the member or the shareholder has got to pick up these profits on their personal income tax return, the reality is, in many cases, those dollars are simply reinvested in the company. So what does the company do as a matter of practice and policy to help out the shareholder of a subchapter S corporation or to help out the member owner of a limited liability company? What those businesses typically do is they make a distribution, a tax distribution to the shareholder, to the member, on a quarterly basis to, in essence, provide resources for them to make their quarterly income tax payments. Very, very interesting. Something else that hasn't changed, by the way, since we talk about quarterly estimated income tax payments. Those dates have been the same for decades, probably never going to change. April 15th, June 15th, September 15th, and January 15th. Four quarterly estimated tax payment dates. April 15th, June 15th, September 15th, and finally January 15th. So, ladies and gentlemen, again, what we've been talking about is asset protection, 
why is it advisable for you to establish a corporation or a limited liability company? Primarily to protect yourself from any business liabilities, any kind of lawsuits, from vendors to employees to customers. Yes, it's designed to do that. But when you set up the corporation or the limited liability company, you must act like it's a separate body. So you've got to set up a bank account. Yes, you've got to set up a bank account in the name of the corporation. You can't use your own personal bank account. Same thing applies for a limited liability company. You've got to have a bank account set up in the name of the limited liability company. Critical, critical. Now, let's talk about um, let's talk about how you address the potential possibility that one of the shareholders, and let's assume there are four, one of the shareholders in a corporation or one of the four shareholders in a limited liability company, God forbid, pass along prematurely, unexpected, suddenly. Or you could use the same scenario and say, what if that individual came to the group one day and said, you know, for personal reasons, I want to get out of this. How would you address that? Think for a second. In the absence of any legal provisions, you would be essentially in uncharted waters. You'd have no idea how to address a buyout. In fact, without any predetermined methods, you wouldn't even be in a position to determine the value of a buyout. So what's critical for a corporation and limited liability company? It's critical that there be embedded in either a shareholder's agreement which would apply to a corporation, or an operating agreement, which would apply to a limited liability company. It's critical that embedded in those agreements are what we refer to as so-called buy-sell provisions. So in other words, if one of the shareholders or the members were to pass along prematurely, how much would the company buy that interest for? And would the estate of that deceased shareholder or member be forced to sell to the company? Yes, usually in most closely held business corporations, you want a tight harmonious group. You really don't want it to be, you don't want the chemistry to be thrown off. You don't want to wake up one morning uh, in this dreadful uh, example that I used and find out that 
one of the four of your business partners has deceased, and now that person's spouse, significant other, kids are now your partners. So how do you avoid that? You avoid that, and you prevent that situation from arising through so-called buy-sell provisions. Essentially, what these buy-sell provisions is, number one, they force the estate of the deceased individual to sell to the company. And the company obligates itself to buy at a specific price. And you might say, how do you find a price? Well, there's different methods. Some folks would say, hey, you use the appraised value. Other folks say, well, you use a formula. Other folks might say, you use the book value. Now, these are points, frankly, fine points, that you want to have some assistance and some input from your CPA or your attorney. And in many cases, like yours truly, you go to a CPA who is also an attorney and you get guidance. All right. Again, we're talking, at least for the time being, about tightening up the screws legally on your business. How do we how do we nail it down? How do we keep control? Speaking of control, another critical consideration. How are corporations controlled? Who controls corporations? Who controls limited liability companies? Well, in most cases, particularly with small corporations, small limited liability companies, it's the members, it's the shareholders. Occasionally, in corporations, you will elect to form a board of directors. If you do, then keep in mind that this board has the legal authority to oversee officers and, frankly, to override management decisions. Although directors are generally focused mainly on policy, they are the ultimate gatekeeper in a corporation. In many states, you can elect not to have a board of directors, and therefore the shareholders would serve that role. And if, in the, if you were involved in a limited liability company, of course, the members would serve that role. Now, Many of you listening might say, well, wait a minute. I'd like to get participation from the outside, but I don't, I'm not interested in having someone else have a legally binding vote or authority over my business. In that case, what is my option? Here's your fallback. And as a matter of fact, I wouldn't even call it fallback. I'd say this is your first go-to. Your first go-to play is to form a board of advisors. That's right. You select five, six, seven individuals with complementary skills. They shouldn't all be the same. You don't want all financial people, all legal people. You don't want all governmental people. You don't want all people that have been in personnel, all people that have been in sales. In the ideal situation, you probably have one of each. And you call them a board of advisors, meaning they're 
their input is only advisory in nature, but it's not binding on the business. Why is this helpful? Because it creates a think tank, a group that you as the chief executive officer, the chief financial strategist of the business. This is an outside group who is independent, who is objective, who can give you hopefully valuable advice and guidance, but without the trappings of any legal obligation for you to follow it. Now, how do you incentivize a board of advisors? Yeah, you give them a stipend. You pay them. That's my advice. That keeps them interested. That keeps them committed. Again, tightening up the screws legally on our business. Let me shift for a second to business risk. Talked a little bit about that in the context of why you might establish a corporation or a limited liability company. But what can you do to, once even that has happened, but the business has assets, the business has cash, it's got accounts receivable. So there are assets now within the business that you want to protect. How might you go about doing that? How can you downsize business risk? Well, in many cases, what we look to, frankly, is we look to tools that will help to mitigate exposure of business assets. One good point, for example, is life insurance on key personnel. That's right. In many cases, a business like yours and mine is driven mainly by one or two key people will take out a life insurance policy so that in the event that that person passes along, that there will be enough resources for the company to continue to operate without suffering, without having to lay anyone off, without having to close the doors, be in a position to go for six 12 months while it deliberates on who to select and put in place as the CEO. So again, this is a good way to downsize business risk. What else might you want to consider? Oh, there's some basics. Disability insurance. And I point that out because disability is so important especially when you think in the context of the owner of a business. If you go down, it has the potential to adversely affect the business because you may be forced to continue to draw a check. And the business on the other hand, may not be in a position to fund that check in your absence. So in other words, you're you're a major contributing force, but you're out of the lineup due to injury. Well, depending on how long you're out, and frankly, what your needs are on the personal level, it very well may spill over into the business. So another personal check that helps to reduce and mitigate risk 
inside the business is disability insurance. Again, we're talking about strategic ways to downsize business risk. As a matter of fact, speaking of risk, most service enterprises are well served by carrying errors and omission insurance. Some folks might refer to it as liability insurance. What it covers is situations in which you're interfacing with customers and you have a staff, you have a team, and they're only human, which means they're subject to make mistakes, innocent mistakes. Rarely is it intentional. But if it costs the customer significant sums of money, how do you protect your business? Well, you do it through errors and admissions. Some folks that, that are lawyers, doctors, and, and CPAs, they do it through professional liability insurance. Same concept. There are even policies that will come into play to mitigate loss of resources due to an unexpected business interruption, a hurricane, a flood, a fire. Business interruption is another form of insurance that we should always think about. Again, ladies and gentlemen, how do we ensure longevity? Well, we ensure longevity and, and profitability. We, we, we assure uh, longevity and success by downsizing business risk internally. Let's turn uh, our focus to strategic priorities. I promised that that would be the third element of our discussion. Why is it so important to formulate strategic priorities in a business? It's important because most small companies only have a limited amount of resources. And frankly, you as a CEO and a chief financial strategist, you only have a limited number of hours in a day. So we've got to be guided by something. Now, I would say this, and let's go back to something we talked about early on in podcast one. We talked about the entrepreneurial journey. We talked about the evolution of a business. Yeah, from, from infancy to adolescence to maturity. Well, strategic priorities should reflect that phase of development. So if I'm a company, frankly, and I'm brand new, probably my number one strategic priority is raising capital. I need seed money. I need enough to open up the doors to, 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 to get a website, to, uh, to, to buy the, the tools that are necessary to acquire the technology, the software. I, I need a startup money. I need seed money. Probably in the latter stages of my infancy, once I've got the business up and going and I'm generating a, 
a, a, a profit and, and cash flow is stabilized a little bit, my priority might be business reinvestment. Yeah, I may need to upgrade my technology. I may need to, to add some critical person to my team with certain expertise. That is a strategic priority. I've got to identify that early. When I reach the stage of adolescence, and I've got some stability as it relates to financial resources, my priority might be to build a reserve. That's right, to build a reserve of working capital. Sort of call it a rainy day fund for those unexpected developments in the course of, of, of business that can impair my cash flow, impair my profitability. So I said, one thing that we know about business is you can always expect the unexpected. So in terms of a strategic priority, I might say my strategic priority is to build a fund and to have uh, maybe a line of credit that will cover my business for three months. That's a strategic priority. In this adolescent stage, if in fact I have investors, other people that have put their hard-earned money into this business, my strategic priority may be to provide a return on their investment. So I distribute some of the earnings of the business to those investors. Again, if it's a corporation, it's a dividend. If it's a limited liability company, it's a distribution. But certainly, that may be, during the adolescence of a business, a strategic priority. Third one that I got to mention, from a strategic priority standpoint, I want to be proactive about tax planning. Yeah, there's a there's a silent partner called the Internal Revenue Service that we've all got to deal with. In the early phase of a business, when you're in your infancy, maybe there are losses being sustained. And you're not as concerned about tax planning because every year there's a loss and the loss serves to your benefit in terms of offsetting other sources of income, household income or family income. But during that adolescence, when all of a sudden the business is stronger, the business is self-supporting, the, the business has a degree of independence and a level of profitability that for tax purposes means now the company has to pay income taxes. Well, strategically, we have to put a reserve aside, call it quarterly estimated tax payments, call it an income tax reserve, but we've got to be prepared to meet Uncle Sam at the end of the year because we don't want to get in a cycle of constant catch-up. That's the worst thing in the world that can happen to any business enterprise. Maturity. When we get to the level where maturity is, is present, and we're feeling like we got the right team in place. We've got 
the, 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 the business is self-supporting. It's stable. Uh, we've got, you know, we've got strong management. Uh, we've got a, a solid customer base. Now our strategic priority might shift to something that people typically refer to as formulating an exit strategy. Yes, now at that point, we need to formulate as a strategic priority an exit strategy. How and what ways might we, what pathways might we take to cash out of the business? Obviously, some things that come to mind right off the top. Should we consider selling the business? If we have employees or relatives who have an interest, desire to buy the business and continue to grow the business and build it, maybe succession is a possibility. But at the stage of maturity, exit planning and strategies become critical. We may also find at the level of maturity, the phase of maturity in a business life cycle, debt retirement is a strategic priority. And you hear often about a company going public. So in essence, what they do is they take their capital structure and they flip it over. They say, hey, we've been living on debt. Debt is demanding. Debt wants a payment every month. Same time, no questions asked. Equity is more flexible. Remember, we talked about that. Equity is patient money. So you very well hear about companies that are in the maturity phase of life, and they go public, they flip, and they go out and attract secure equity from a large number of investors, and they use that to pay off the debt. In other cases, what a company will do is a company says, we're not necessarily going out to attract investors and get equity. We just want to concentrate on retiring the debt that we owe. Maybe it's to a bank, financial institution. We're now at a point we want to get rid of it. So, again, we were talking about pinpointing, in this segment of our discussion, pinpointing strategic priorities. And ladies and gentlemen, this discussion covers what I said from the beginning. These are qualitative dimensions of building a successful business enterprise. I thank you. I hope these ideas and the concepts resonate with you. It's no doubt in my mind they will contri contribute to the success and the stability of your business enterprise. As always, if you have questions, please don't hesitate to contact me directly at Lou Hutt. That is Lou Hutt at thehuttco.com. 
Lou Hutt, L-O-U-H-U-T-T, at the Hutco, T-H-E-H-U-T-T-C-O dot com. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening and enjoy your success. 